So that's how she rolls the podcast where I explore what it's like living life as a young disabled person and some of the key issues and debates surrounding disability and inclusion. On today's show, I sit down for a good old chat with my friend Christian. He's a PhD sociology student at the University of Leeds. His current research, Becoming Ourselves Online, investigates social media use of disabled transgender people in identity construction and community building. Christian identifies as transmasculine and disabled. He has cerebral palsy, anxiety and depression and I'm very excited to have him on the show. So hello Christian, welcome to That's How She Rolls. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be sitting down with you and having a chat today. I know you, you know me, but the listeners might not. So do you want to just introduce yourself in your own words? Yeah, totally. Uh, Hello everyone who's listening out there. My name is Christian. Um, I'm a PhD student at the University of Leeds, um, currently studying in sociology, my research is looking at how disabled and transgender people use social media. Um, that's kind of what I do professionally, I guess. On a personal level about me, uh, I identify as disabled, so I have cerebral palsy, um, and I also manage some different mental health things, uh, and I also identify as transgender. And I guess the way that Lucy and I know each other and how we first met, I guess, was through uh, doing wheelchair basketball in Leeds. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you're always keeping me active, you know, so. Definitely. Yeah. We met a few years ago uh, playing basketball for Leeds Rhinos. And yeah, we're still at it today, apart yeah, from COVID. That doesn't yeah, help. Apart from the pandemic. But... Tell me a little bit more about your research, because as you know, I'm extremely interested in stuff like that. Basically, for me, I'm really interested in how social media gets used. Um, as a medium for people to express themselves, but also as a way to understand ourselves better. Um, So I kind of have this theory that, you know, trans people and disabled people, we often come from a place where our community isn't who we grew up with necessarily. Our families might not be disabled or identify in the same way that we do. And so we might not know people that are like us around us. And so for myself, For sure, I go online to find that community in different ways. So I'm just kind of excited to find out how people are using social media and what that means for their kind of identity construction and how community building and activism kind of also gets done online and if that's kind of changed how people view themselves and things like that. Another piece of that, I think, also is like, for myself, I find myself when I'm online, I'm like either looking at trans content or I'm looking at disabled content and not a lot of the intersection. Um, So I want to see if that's just me not knowing where to go or if that's like other people's experiences too. Yeah, definitely. I can relate to that. I do spend a lot of time online myself and I do find myself looking at disabled content a lot because I think that's part of my identity. Like my Instagram feed is a lot of disabled YouTubers. I'm not going to lie. 
that is the whole of my Instagram feed. But definitely interesting. So why did you decide uh, disability and transgender? What was the thought behind that? Yeah, so I will be honest, it was a very selfish thought in that um, for my life, with, with my two identities, I noticed how one impacted the other. So I think like when I, being disabled a lot of my life, I think I distanced myself from my body. I know that we've spoken about this off the podcast as well before, but um, just in different ways of not connecting with my body or not feeling that my body was moving in the way that I wanted it to. So I kind of, yeah, I distanced myself from it, even though you're always connected to your body, but it was more of like a mental distancing, I think. And then when I started transitioning um, and doing things that was physically changing my body, um, then I, you know, I, um, I had to take a moment and like, I was doing things for my transition that made me feel good about my body. And so then there was a moment in time where I had to kind of reconcile the shame that I had around my disabled body and the pride that I had in my trans body, even though it's the same body, um, and kind of bring those two together and say, okay, um, you know, if I am proud of this, but not proud of that, where is that disconnect and what can I do to kind of bring this together. So because of that influence between the two identities and the fact that I was also using YouTube a lot um, as one of my main avenues, but also like Facebook groups and things to uh, ask questions or actually, let's be honest, not ask the questions, but look at what other people have asked and find the answers, be like a stalker online a bit. Um, that kind of brought me to be like, we don't often have a discussion around how the two identities intersect with one another. And I think, you know, trans stuff has gotten a lot more popular in the news and things and so as disability stuff I think is coming out more um, in popular media but I don't think I don't know I just kind of want to be the person who's in the community and who's doing research for the community. So what advice then would you give to someone wanting to uh, start a career in research? Yeah um, well I think there's lots of different routes that don't get talked about obviously the main I don't want to say the most popular one, but the main way people know is through academia. So that's the route that I went through. Um, <clears throat> so I have a, a bachelor's degree in sociology. Um, I then did a master's in social research, um, which is how then I got fed into my PhD program. And so kind of the master's that I did wasn't, the content was more about methodology and things. So not of interest to me, I like theory and like gender studies and disability studies and things like that. Uh, but I picked the master's because I knew that it would teach me the research skills that I would need to use going into a PhD. And now that I'm doing a PhD, it's kind of three years where I can, I'm running my own research project, which is the first time I've ever done something of this scale, uh, but it's kind of allowing me to get use of that. And then so after the PhD, I think a lot of people have the roots of uh, going into academia, being a professor, things like that. But it also gives you the opportunity uh, to work with organizations and to be a researcher in that way um, for different, like the, what's it called? The Joshua Roundtree Foundation does a lot of poverty research and things like that. So different institutes are there. Um, so yeah, the academic route is definitely one way in which to do it. But I also know, I think research is becoming more common now across the board with different organizations and like wherever you work is looking for researchers and different things. And depending on 
what you're doing for work kind of dictates the type of research. So is it, you know, market research with the consumer um, to identify a specific type of product? Like you're still using those same skills, I would say that it's taught in academia and at university, but in uh, kind of a different way. I don't know how you feel, but I think as a disabled person, there's a certain level of pressure society puts on you to do so much activism and be a voice for your community. I don't know if you felt that's had an impact on your research at all because you identify as disabled, you, you feel the need to, to be a voice for the community and be that activism because there is a pressure to perform and really make sure our voices are heard. Yeah, definitely. I was actually having a conversation yesterday, funnily enough, with two uh, disabled uh, PhD students and myself kind of about the same topic um, because I don't come from an activist background. Like I would say I got into activism within the last couple of years. So like I'm part of Leeds Disabled People's Organization currently, but I'd never really done any disability activism before that. Um, I think for me with my identity development, I wasn't in a place where I was ready to kind of engage in that stuff. Um, and I think as an academic, there is kind of that pressure or for myself, I want to show up as an academic that's not stuck at the university, but kind of bringing my research and doing it for the people and the on the ground work kind of thing. So, but within activism, I'm not I'm not that kind of voice. So it's been kind of hard for me because I do want to say things, but I'm not I'm not loud and out there. And so, one of the persons I was talking to, she was saying that uh, she doesn't have an activism kind of persona either and she doesn't feel comfortable doing that like she doesn't feel comfortable going to a march or things like that that's just not how uh, she is and she's still kind of figuring out her own disabled identity but she does kind of feel this pressure being a disabled academic that she has to show up in a certain way in all these spaces and wants to find kind of different ways to doing that because not all of us are like out there to march and to yell and to do all these petitions so um I think there's different ways of looking at activism that we don't often talk about. I think, um, you know, kind of the mainstream activism gets most of the attention. But for me, I hope that my research can be a part of activism, you know, um, having a voice out there connecting to what people, what people's lives are about and what's really happening for people. And I hope that that can be there too, or even, you know, being present and, and open and out online and my different identities I hope that that's kind of encouraging to people maybe that's self-indulgent to think uh that way but um so yeah and it's just like we, we were also talking about how within disability studies and I think within other areas and fields as well you get kind of dominant uh thoughts or dominant ideas that people pursue and so then it gets hard within activism what if somebody like uses a different like language or terminology to you to describe the same thing, like who is right and wrong within that? And should there be a hierarchy within the system? And so what are, what are the more, not passive ways, but different ways that people can engage with activism? Because also I think it's quite elitist. Oftentimes we use language and stuff that other people can't, and I'm kind of using it right now, I'm too much in academia, I think. Um, but yeah, if somebody is just engaging with a disability and I come along and I'm like, oh, the social model of disability is the best one. And it's like all made up of social structures. They're going to be like, what are you talking about, mate? Like, I'm just trying <laughs> to live my life. And so it's, um, I think that's something where like we need activism and I think we need to also like learn a way to talk about it in a way that's not 
pressuring for other people not too intimidating I guess yeah definitely I'd agree with that and I think with activism there's a problem with activism and inclusive spaces because I think I look at me I go to Manchester Pride every year I love it it's one of my favorite events but every year I have so many difficulties because there's no wheelchair access there's nothing and for an inclusive event for me it doesn't feel that inclusive because they're excluding a marginalized group of people because there's no wheelchair access and pride's all about activism yeah I'm going to say that again pride's all about activism that's a really difficult word to say and you know having the LGBTQ community voices heard and not being able to go and access that just because I've got a disability is quite frustrating but being able to research and study a degree in media and cultural studies and research uh, around disability and media I think is definitely one of the ways I express my activism and opinions. You mentioned about how do people we bring different identities to the table when we go to different spaces and that's something that I think it's growing within our communities or within our spaces but it's still something um, that needs to be worked on like there's a um, there's a podcast I listened to from a disabled guy. It's Disability After Dark. Um, and he, he's based in Canada. And I was listening to a, a Pride podcast from him about that. And it, he was explaining exactly what you'd experienced about how inaccessible Pride was for him to engage in that community. So, yeah, I hope there's more people. I think it's growing, but I don't know what we can do to make people hear us. Yeah, I think we'll get there. Things are definitely changing and I'm slowly starting to see romps and all sorts of inclusive things pop up, but we're still a bit of a way off yet. I mean, I think we're very lucky in how far disability rights have come just in in the last 20 years, which I think is absolutely crazy. I was watching a very good documentary on the BBC about it the other day, which actually taught me a lot. And I do feel a bit stupid I guess as a disabled person I don't know that much about the history of disabled people and how we got our equal but not so equal rights yeah well it's not something that's educated in schools you know um it's not something we hear about and I think that is like can be a very isolating experience I often wonder if I was younger and I'd learned a bit more about that when I was younger would I would it have taken me so long to kind of get into quote unquote activism or into kind of advocating for myself in different ways? Like imagine if part of the the school curriculum was disability rights, LGBT rights and the history surrounding that. I think I would feel so much different and it wouldn't have taken me 21 years to work out who I am. I want to know who are three people that have been the most influential to you? This doesn't have to be in your academic life. It can be personal life as well. Yeah. Um, one person I think is, his name is Eli Clare. He's a, a trans disabled person himself, but he, he wrote some, one of his books is, uh, oh, I have them here actually. Uh, Exile and Pride is one of his books. And, um, and brilliant imperfection. Anyway, he, he talks about stuff from his own personal journey and things like that. It was one of the biggest, the first books that I read that kind of 
allowed me to realize the shame that I had around myself and try to deconstruct that, I guess, and work through that. Um, and I've, I've seen him speak a couple of times. I've never actually talked to him. I always go up and be like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And then I run away. Um, but yeah, so I think he would be, um, he would be one. <clears throat> I think, um, this is really cheesy, but I think my dad would be another one. Um, yeah, we're, we're very different people um, and we don't have a lot in common really at all. But I think just his, um, so like I'm a very anxious person and quite highly strung at times. And my dad kind of tries to take on this like calm personality and he always tries to like listen to people's perspectives and understand um, before coming to a conclusion. So I think like that has taught me a lot um, within that. And I also think um, with my transition, not that he, uh, I mean, he didn't really help with that, but I think um, showing him, him, his portrayal of his masculinity helped me to kind of see myself in a different way or see how I could exist in the world without, without needing to take up toxic pieces of masculinity that I didn't like. Um, and although I don't identify wholly as male, I think some of that I brought on as well. I think most recently there's been a couple people that I follow. <clears throat> so I guess this is a more recent one for me, but uh, called, uh, their name is Ben Vincent and they're a former PhD student at the University of Leeds. Um, but I think this is like, I kind of see them, although they don't know me, uh, as kind of a mentor. So there's somebody that I see, they're a few years ahead of me and where I hope to be um, in my life. And so I think that's really helped me to kind of, I can look at what they've done and kind of help that to identify what I need to do uh, and, and kind of show me what's possible. Because I think oftentimes, you know, particularly maybe being disabled, I think you often get messages of like, um, you know, that we don't do anything or like because we do things differently that it's not we're not as productive for society and and things like that and so just to see someone else who shares some of the same life experiences that I do who has been successful and how they've connected within community and like done what they needed to do and they might not have taken the most traditional path or they might have to take time out or things like that and just kind of reminding myself that there is people out there like me who are succeeding um, and that we can kind of forge our own path in a way that doesn't always look the same as what we're told that it should be. Um, and that's, and that we can still do what we need to do and be who we want to be. Just because we're disabled doesn't mean we can't achieve and accomplish something. I know we get frowned upon a lot and people assume if you're physically disabled, you're also mentally disabled as well. So unable to reach an academic height which is absolutely crazy because that's just not the case and I love the fact that your dad is on the list as well <laughs> I think it's so important to have a role model isn't it and someone you can look up to and learning from people around you I think family parents and looking at how they identify and how they express themselves always has an impact on your own identity and your own expression because I know for me my Mum, growing up, it's probably, she might, if she if she's listening to this, I'm very sorry, but she's probably not the most feminine at times. She doesn't wear a lot of makeup, 
but she's still also very feminine in the sense of how she dresses. And I think that's had an impact on me because, well, I don't wear makeup, but I'm, I'm also quite comfortable in wearing a dress and expressing myself in a different way. If our listeners want to learn a bit more about you or connect with you online, where can they follow you on social media? Uh, well, right now you can, I don't want to say everywhere because I'm sure there's places that I don't know that exist. Uh, but I'm on, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I have Tumblr and TikTok. I don't use those as well. I'll try to get into them again. Uh, but it's all of mine, are, it's CJH research is my is my name it's very boring but it was one of the only ones that was available on all the sites and I try to keep it consistent um I'm also on YouTube under that as well so yeah it's just CJH research so it's time for awkward moments yay we're gonna take it in turns to share an awkward moment this could be true or false we're then going to rank that awkward moment on a scale of one to five five being extremely awkward one being not very awkward, and we're going to decide if it's true or false. Okay. So I'll start. I am a uni student, and on one of my first days at uni, I turned up to a lecture, and there was a massive flight of stairs to get to the lecture hall and no lifts. And being being a wheelchair user, this was obviously quite difficult to navigate so I turned up, massive flight of stairs, no lifts, couldn't get to my lecture theatre. So I just kind of sat at the bottom of the stairs awkwardly, didn't really know oh. what to do because I was still learning who was who. And like all my classmates were there and uh, they all recognised me because I'm the only wheelchair user on the course. So I, I stand out and uh, they'd all like walk past me up the half flight of stairs to get to the lecture theatre and no one like said anything. Everyone just stood at the top of the stairs and watched me at the bottom of the stairs as I, like, stared up the stairs, longing to be with them. Uh, And then my lecturers turned off and, yeah, they didn't know what to do. They didn't have a clue because it was timetabling's fault. Because apparently that's an accessible room putting it up a flight of stairs. Oh, my gosh. That's so ridiculous. Okay. Well, that is pretty awkward. That is, uh, I don't know. Um, I think, given that it, it was your first day, right? I think that adds that adds to the awkwardness there. Although, if it was months in, that's more, but more awkward because you literally don't know who to talk to. Or I think that's got to be like, I think it's solid as four, a four for me. Fair enough. Yeah, it was like my first day or my first week at uni, like the uni obviously knew I was there and that I needed wheelchair access because I declared all that and sorted it before, but yeah, it didn't happen. So yeah, I'd, I'd, solid four sounds good. So I actually think that you've told me this story before, so I think that it is true. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. I'm sure you've heard me rant multiple times about accessibility in Leeds and yeah this is a yeah. true true story oh so good so uh, your turn hit me with it Christian okay well my turn my, my turn my story is <clears throat> this is probably starts uh 
I was fairly early on in my transition, I would say, my, my gender transition. So I think I think it was within the first year. Um, and my dad and I were going to go to a spinning cycling class, um, <clears throat> which I like. I can do it. It's fine. Um, however, you wear cycle shorts. If, I don't know if you know. I have cycle shorts. Anyway, and they're super tight. They're like later. I don't know if they're later, but they're super tight around you. And I had it in my brain that I needed to have a bulge in my pants because if I did it the people would notice when I was cycling that I didn't have a penis um I hope that's okay to say on a podcast I didn't check that absolutely Uh, fine okay uh and so there's this thing that you can get called a packer which is a silicone prosthetic penis um if people don't know and you put it in your in your pants and it creates a bolt I don't really use a packer now I don't find them very comfortable at all it makes me super self-conscious it's not how I want my body to be anywho but at that time I really felt like I needed that so <clears throat> I put it in there it was a bad decision anyways because as soon as I started cycling I started chasing it was very uncomfortable <laughs> and sore um, so that was bad then so we go back to the locker room and I'm with my dad and it's the first time that we've been in the same locker room before as well which I think adds to the whole situation so I put the towel around me and I'm like trying to get my <clears throat> shorts off right um and yeah I'm disabled so I think I'm like obviously I'm standing up to try to do it but I like I'm wobbling a bit anyway so as I pull down my cycle shorts uh the packer flops out onto the floor of the oh. locker room this is like a public this is like oh no anyway so I'm just like oh I'm just like oh my god and my dad sees it happen I think you could like hear the flop as well but he like my dad sees it happen he runs over with a towel and like grabs it and throws it in my locker and then I'm just like okay I'm gonna take a shower and I like run off in the other direction away and we like don't talk about it until we get back to the car and then I awkwardly like was like thanks for saving me there dad but yeah wow that's yeah, definitely <laughs> awkward. I'm gonna give that a five out of five for awkward. You know, I can just I can picture it happening to you, and <laughs> I can imagine the people around you just responding and being like, "What is going on?" Also, just pitching you on a spin bike in a spin <laughs> class is making me very happy right now. Because I think yes. if me and you were to get on a spin bike, <laughs> it would look it look interesting, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Definitely a five out of five for awkward. I'm sorry that happened, but I'm sure it's an okay. experience you've learned from. And I'm going to go with it's true. It is true, indeed. Wow. Only in my life would that happen and be true. <laughs> well, if it was going to happen to someone, it might as well happen to you, Christian. <laughs> That's so true. Oh. Jeez. So my next awkward moment, I do a lot of traveling, right? And I'm very fortunate to have gone to a lot of places. So I was in Canada a few years ago and I was on a bus tour in Canada um, with some friends and we were driving on this tour up and down Canada. It was a private tour company that had organized it. And I said that I was a wheelchair user um, they obviously didn't get the message and they had an inaccessible bus. But oh. that is not the awkward moment. No, no, no. So we're on this bus in the middle of Ontario and we're driving to this restaurant and the bus driver pulls up at the side of the road, just stops in front of this restaurant on a public road where you're not allowed to stop. He, he gets off the bus, right? And then he gets my chair my wheelchair off the bus 
and puts it on the pavement. So my wheelchair is obviously stored underneath the coach and we're sat on top of the coach and obviously I had to like crawl on the coach. So it took me a while to get on. So yeah, he takes my chair off. He puts it on the, the pavement. He then gets back on the bus with us all on the bus, shuts the door and drives off. What? What? <laughs> and my chair is just there on the pavement. And we're all like, oh, my friends are banging on the windows being like, Lucy needs that wheelchair. <laughs> like, she's just not going to crawl everywhere, is she? Like, she needs the wheelchair. And the bus driver, like, because he, he mainly spoke uh, French, was kind of like in a French accent, like, oh, I don't understand. I can't do a French accent. I'm very sorry for any French people. Um, and was like, it's fine. We'll leave it there while we go park the coach. And I was like, you can't just leave a wheelchair in the middle of the street in Ontario. Like, you, one, how am I going to get from the coach to my wheelchair? And yeah. two, what if someone steals it? Then I'm going to be stuck. Like, wheelchairs are expensive. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that's my awkward moment. My chair getting left on the sidewalk oh. and me being stuck on a bus. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. That, okay, that has to be a five. That, that's utterly ridiculous. I just can't. You're going to have to tell me how this ended up, like, what ended up happening at the end. But unfortunately, given the situations that I've seen with disability and the situations that you and I have been in around trying to get, like, your chair into a Witherspoons where the dumpster is blocking the accessible entrance and they have to move three tables in order for us to uh, use the lift, uh, I do actually think this is a true story. Maybe maybe you made it a bit more wild, but I do think it's, I think it's true. Yeah, it is a true story and it was very awkward. And um, there were people on the coach that like I hadn't really spoken to. And then fortunately I got along with a lot of the people on the coach because we were in a group of 20 and I knew most people. So you can imagine everyone was banging on the window, shouting at the bus driver and it turned into a bit of a riot because everyone was sticking up for me being like, why, yeah. why do that? But yeah. eventually uh, I got reunited with my chair and was able to go to the restaurant and join everyone. Podcast, that's great. It's all right, um, I've got a nice big cup of tea. Nice, nice, cheers. Oh, I like your mug. Uh, it's my um, Barbara mug from Stranger Things. Oh, never I forget. So pink and blue polka dots, so <laughs> I was happy. Uh, so my next story is also a traveling related incident, I guess. Um, so when I was 18, at the end of my doing my IB A levels, um, I went to India for three weeks. It was like this service trip slash, uh, like we did hiking around as well. Um, and for those who don't know, I have CP, but I can walk. Um, and I, I just use poles when I'm hiking and things like that. So uh, I didn't have, there was people there on the trip that like helped us, but I did most of the things independently. So anyway, so we had to travel around and get where we needed to go in India. And it was all about learning leadership and experience so us as like I want to say kids but as teenagers were like leading most of the trip with a couple of chaperones one of the days we had to get a train from one city to another um and uh so there was 14 of us that had to get on so we all lined up like in a row we all had our like backpacks on I think somebody else was carrying mine actually or something like that. anyway uh we all started to get on the train and now 
But trains in India, for people that don't know, or at least when I visited there, aren't like the UK and they don't wait for everyone to get on. They are just like, if it's time to go, they just start leaving. Oh, so no. I, I was like second to last or third to last at the back of the line. So most everybody had gotten on. And then the train had started moving like slowly. Um, but And so I went to step on and my brain didn't, well, like my brain didn't compute that because the train was moving sideways, I needed to step up and slightly sideways. So I just stepped up and straight down and so I stepped into the gap between the train and the bus. Oh no! At which point I'm like holding on there's like 10 people in the train from my group just like looking in despair as they don't know like what to do about it and then there's two people behind me luckily like young lads the chaperones who were like pushing me and eventually like pushed me onto the picked me up and trucked me on the train effectively and then like ran alongside and then they managed to jump on as well but I was like oh my gosh it was just yeah it was wow the only near-death experience I've had related to disability. wow yeah just the fact that you've had more than one near-death experience says a lot really doesn't it well I'm glad you didn't die <laughs> yeah me too. A, a bonus I'm gonna go with a solid five for that that was thank you and I do think it's true <laughs> it is true yes <laughs> it definitely happens wow I bet yeah. India was fun though it's one of the places I'd love to go to but at the same time I'm a bit scared because I know how inaccessible India is yes yeah it was a great experience I feel a little bit conflicted now because it was like a pseudo service trip but I don't actually think we did anything to help I think we were just around some school kids and we were just being kind of like oh look at us I'm like helping some children in India um but all of that said traveling in India it was beautiful I really appreciated it um and I am also glad that I had the mobility to move around because yeah like you said it's not always the most accessible um and, you know, we took tuk-tuks, which are the little, like, rickshaw, like, taxi things that they have. I remember, like, packing, like, six people into one of those. We definitely should not have done that. <laughs> um, and, like, so just like that, you couldn't get a wheelchair on those. Like, they're not big enough for that at all. Maybe they have some accessible ones now. I don't know. Um, but, like, different things like that. And the roads are not the same, always the same condition that we're used to in the UK of, like, even though some of the UKs have, like, potholes and some uneven things for the most part they're pretty pretty flat so yeah UK roll uh, roads and pavements aren't great but I can't imagine the quality <laughs> trying to push down a sidewalk in India that would definitely be an interesting experience yeah. and you've you've lived all over the world haven't you so you've done a lot of traveling and lived and seen a lot of crazy things yeah, yeah. So growing up, I lived in Japan for six years. Um, and I also lived in the US. I lived in Colorado for uh, for eight years. And then I lived in Oregon for three years. So 11 years in the US in total there. So yeah, I guess I've seen a bit, traveled around, around there as well. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and you're originally from the UK, aren't you? You just sound like you're from America. I am, yes. I meant to to say that in my uh, bio because, yes, for for all people that don't know, I am originally from the UK. I do just have a bit of a a weird accent. It changes here and there because of everywhere I've lived. So, yeah, I've lived um, 10, no longer than that, in the UK now, for 12 years in the UK. I was born in the UK and then I moved back for my master's and my PhD. 
that's fair. I mean, I can relate. I'm from Manchester. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm living in Leeds now. So I'm starting to pick up on a, a Yorkshire accent. So now I've just got a mashup of Manchester <laughs> and Yorkshire. And uh, <laughs> I don't think people can like work out where I'm from anymore because it's just this hybrid of the North. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I get I get some funny looks. Or people assume I'm from the US and then they're like, oh, how are things going? The US is terrible right now. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't live there anymore. <laughs> I don't need to relate to the US <laughs> and yeah. what's happening over there. Yeah, that's fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah, definitely a five, and that was definitely true. Your Indian experience—that's <laughs> what I'm going to call it. So, um, oh, awkward moment for me. So, um, oh, I was swimming in the sea in Spain because we spent a lot of time in Spain growing up as a kid and I got stung by a jellyfish and um, got out the water and was like walking a little bit funny and just people were looking at me being like why is she walking funny like what like she's been stung by a jellyfish like whatever (laughs) and then like turns out the jellyfish didn't actually sting me I just like hit my knee on something and my leg had spasmed um so yeah I had to tell people that it wasn't because I'd been stung by a jellyfish it was because um I've got a neurological condition so uh walk a little bit funny uh because all the all the British tourists were just staring me down oh oh, I hate that I know exactly what that feels like I think, oh, like a whole beat. And after you've been stung by, thought that you'd been stung by a jellyfish. Oh, that just makes it even more awkward. Oh my god. Oh, that's got to be a solid five for me. I think. I think we're rocking today. We've got some really awkward things. Obviously, you and I have had an incredibly awkward life. Can I break some news to you though? Is that a lie? That that was a lie. I get asked a lot why I walk funny. Like, I'll give myself that if I go on a night out without my chair. Because I can obviously, I can walk a little bit, but I walk really funny. People are like, oh, you're so drunk. You're really drunk. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm really not. I just walk funny. And I have been stung by a jellyfish in the past. But that incident right. combined never occurred. Okay, no. Ah, uh, you got me. I also, I've been stopped by a policeman before asking if I was too drunk to drive home because wow. of how I walked uh and it was it was pretty late I will give him that it was like three in the morning but I hadn't okay. I, hadn't, I hadn't drunk until like I drunk at the very beginning of the night and then danced mm-hmm. it like what yeah. had one drink and then so by that time it was fine but, at least it wasn't like one o'clock in the afternoon and you were just yeah. casually driving and have just been pulled over that would have been a lot a lot yeah. worse yeah I have had a couple friends with CP who he's been stopped in the Walmart parking lot before in like in the afternoon after he's gone shopping gotten back in his truck and people have like called the police on him because they think he's drunk it's crazy isn't it people are so used to seeing like a normal way of walking that when when anyone else walks slightly differently they're like oh you're drunk or there's something wrong with you and I'm like I'm not drunk and there's nothing wrong with me I was born this way deal with it (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And I think for him, some, his speech is also affected. So I feel like that doesn't 
help him either because then people just think he's more drunk because of how he talks, yeah. which isn't. Like for me, it's quite obvious. You can for me, I can tell if somebody's drunk or if someone's mm-hmm. like disabled. That like, maybe that's my life experience, but it's like for me, it's fairly obvious. To, oh to, yeah. I can relate to that. I think I've got like a, a special like radar or something where I can just pick out disabled people in a in a crowd at a nightclub. I'm like, yep, you, 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 which is quite useful sometimes. Um, okay, <clears throat> but I have one story uh, from when I uh, one of the first times I ever got drunk. I got quite drunk, and uh, I, after coming back from a friend's family's member's wedding, we had, like, the after party at their house. <clears throat> and so we'd gone upstairs, and we were, like, we'd gotten some alcohol and gone upstairs, and we were drinking quite a lot. Uh, and, yeah, and, like, when I'm drunk, I get quite tipsy, literally <laughs> tipsy. Like, my, yep. my balance is bad anyways. That's not really the first thing to go. Um and so I went to go into the bathroom. I, I think just to like, anyway, just to go into the bathroom. And I leant down on the sink and I put all my weight on the sink and I ended up breaking the sink. Oh, like, no. It came away from the wall. Like it wasn't quite enough on there. And it just, putting all my weight on it just made it break. And I had to like tell my friend and then everybody just made so much fun of me after that. I never lived it down. So. Oh, that is is awkward but compared to other things that have happened it's not the most awkward thing that's happened to you I don't think so I'm going to give it a solid three right yeah. and I think oh part of me is like are you lying to me Christian are you lying to me but at the same time I've been in a situation very similar situation so I'm going to go true but okay. I could be wrong <laughs> can I tell you something Lucy yeah go for it that is actually false. Oh. So not, it is It is a story that actually happened, but it didn't happen to me. Oh, I was close. Yeah. I, I shouldn't have doubted myself. But I know. I thought you got me there. <laughs> I can relate. Like when I was in um, sixth form, we had one disabled toilet and I was like the only person that needed access to the disabled toilet. So it, it, yeah, it was, it became my toilet. And then the heads of years, because they didn't have a staff toilet in the sixth form block. So one day I went into the disabled toilet, just kind of waddled in <laughs> and fell over my own feet and oh. fell into the radiator in the oh, toilet. No. <laughs> and the radiator just fell off the wall and made like a massive bang. And I didn't know what to do. So I just like had a wee very quickly, washed oh. my hands and like, ran out the toilet as best I could and, like, hid. And, like, I was just hoping that no one would find the radiator. And then, obviously, like, my head of year needed the toilet at some point later on in the day. And he went in and he found the radiator on the floor in the toilet. And he was like, well, there's only one person that could have fallen into a radiator and broken it. And he came and found me and I had to confess. Oh. (laughs) That was fun. Oh, that's so bad. I've had a toilet... A similar experience of falling into a toilet. So wow. in my, my apartment in Japan where I used to live, Japanese toilets, if, if people don't know, some of them you can get in your home have a lot of buttons and they have like a bidet that comes out and like sprays your bum and like there's a heated up seat thing in it. So anyway, I fell over basically into with my head into like the toilet seat in my own house. So it wasn't oh. super gross. Um, but I hit the <laughs> buttons on the side and I'm just sitting there and I hear a, like, a, and then like the hose from the back 
comes out and it starts really like in the face and I'm like putting my hands down like like it was like a comic scene from the movie like trying to block it because I couldn't it was all in Japanese and then I finally found the red button that was like stopped and so I pressed it and I just turned around and the mirror behind me was like sprayed with this like water from the toilet just like toilet water everywhere everywhere yes it was clean though it was clean like I hadn't been yet but oh yes I yeah falling into toilet stories yeah yeah toilets in other countries are well interesting like I I've been to Japan and I've, I've spent a bit of time in Japan and I remember when like we stopped off at Abu Dhabi and this was my first time kind of outside of like Europe or the state well, yeah. this was my first time in Asia and it was a, I went to the toilet and it was a hole in the ground and I yes. was like how do I deal with this situation I need a wee if I sit on the floor, I ain't getting back up and there is a hole in the ground. Yes. So I yeah. think like we were flying from then from Abu Dhabi or Dubai somewhere to Japan. It was the next bit of the journey. And rather than going for a wee, I just held it in for the 12 hour flight. What? <laughs> no. Yeah. Because I got self-conscious about weeing in a hole. Oh, wait, even but on the plane, can you have gone on the plane? I could have gone on the plane, but I'm sure, as you know, like walking on a it's on a moving good. object is not easy. So I was like, no, once I'm on a plane and I'm sat down, I am not moving out of that seat. Like I flew to Australia last year and I couldn't walk or wait there at this point. So I had to have yeah. help getting on and off the plane. And I needed a wee like six hours oh. into the flight. And I told the flight person because so they could go and get the onboard wheelchair. I was like, I need yeah. a wee. But she didn't speak any English and she didn't understand me. Because um, we were flying with China Eastern Airlines. So oh, I said, no. I just had to hold it for the whole flight. So what? I didn't no. drink anything for like 24 hours. That's not okay. But I know that it happens. Like, yeah, that's ridiculous. Thanks for playing awkward moments. We uh, definitely had some awkward moments. I think, yeah, my favourite one is definitely you in India. I think that wins the game by far. Just the fact that you had a near-death experience just makes it that bit better, really, doesn't it? Thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, well done. The winner of Awkward Moments is Christian. As we said before, check out Christian on social media to learn more about his research and check out That's How She Rolls on Facebook to learn a bit more about my journey. 